So we're in Acts 21 and 22 today. We're going to start with prayer and we're going to dive right into the text of Scripture. Let's do that. God in heaven, we humble ourselves before you just now. And we thank you for Scripture. What a blessing, Father. It's a blessing that we too easily take for granted. We just assume that the Bible is going to be there when we wake up in the morning. It's going to be sitting on the shelf. It's going to be there on our nightstand. The, the Bible is something that we've grown up with. And we've seen it. And we've heard about it. We know that it exists. And yet, Father, in this book is a revelation of yourself down through history, down through the ages. A revelation of your love and of your goodness of your providential and sovereign care over your creation. And Father, forgive us, please, where we have taken this beautiful book, this love letter from you for granted. Forgive us where we have neglected it and other things have taken precedence and priority. Father, where the internet has gotten our attention, or the television, or the movies, or the sports. Father, all of those things have their sphere of influence, but Father, forgive us where they have taken precedence and priority over your word. Be with us now, Father, as we turn our attention unreservedly and undividedly to Scripture today, Acts chapters 21 and 22, and speak from the ancient word to the modern church. Give us something today, something we can put in our pocket, take home, and use in the weeks, months, and years to come. We look forward to meeting with you today in your word, and we ask that the Spirit would come and be with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Acts. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, Acts 21, Jared covered Acts chapter 21 last Sabbath, and in fact, he did. He did a great job, spoke about forgiveness. I don't know how many of you were here, not last Sabbath, but the Sabbath before. Last Sabbath, we had beautiful baptisms. Wasn't that an awesome Sabbath last Sabbath? I had many people come up to me and say, man, that was a real highlight of the year. But the Sabbath before, Jared talked to us about forgiveness. You might remember he told us a story about that absolutely ridiculous cat of his, you remember that? How he was struggling to forgive his cat? I could have solved that cat problem in about 30 seconds with a large rock. And don't think I wouldn't have. Don't think I wouldn't have. Anyway, the cat's gone now. Apparently not to cat heaven, probably cat hell, knowing that thing. And um, Jared got us up to about verse 14. But it would be very difficult to understand what's going to take place after this if we didn't spend some significant time in the latter half of Acts chapter 21. We are going to get to Acts chapter 22 today, which is mainly, it's largely a recapitulation of Paul's testimony, Paul telling his story again, and we're going to get there. But before we do, we've got to spend some significant time in Acts chapter 21, because what's happening here is the missionary journeys of Paul are over. Right? Unless you want to count his journey to Rome as a missionary journey, which certainly it was because Paul was a missionary and everywhere he went was, was ostensibly a missionary journey. But, but the major, what are referred to as the three missionary journeys of Paul, they are over now. We have come to their conclusion. They're here on the screen for you. We've been through Paul's first missionary journey, which is Acts chapters 13 and 14. This is where Paul makes that sort of local, regional trip up into uh, Syria, what we would call today modern Turkey. It was a sort of a shorter trip, the shortest of the three trips. It took place over about two and a half years, and uh, Paul had a very successful trip. But in that first missionary journey, Paul began to preach the gospel largely to a Gentile audience. Largely to a what, everyone? Gentile audience, and the way that Paul would preach was that Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to become members of God's covenant people. This was hugely controversial in first century Judaism, and so Paul was, as it were, called in on the carpet in Acts 15. You'll notice that Acts 15 is missing there. It goes straight from the first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, right to the second of Acts 16 to the latter part of 18. Acts 15 is missing, and that's because Acts 15 takes place in Jerusalem where Paul was called in by the church. And not so much by the church as by people who were concerned about Paul's liberal preaching, Paul's tearing down of Moses and of the sanctuary, purportedly tearing down of Moses and of the sanctuary and of the Jewish customs and traditions. That's going to come up today. In fact, that is going to spell the very situation that results in the arrest and ultimate execution of Paul. So it's going to come back to haunt him. But after Paul's first missionary journey, he went back, he explained himself to the church, and the church sent him on with their blessing. We'll be back on that in just a second. Then Paul's second missionary journey was quite a bit longer, and he traveled well up into Asia, all the way over into Eastern, uh, Eastern Macedonia, and then also back to Jerusalem. And then we've just spent our time recently. Paul goes back on a very similar journey. 
in the third missionary journey, Paul goes back on a very similar journey to the second, right? Makes his way all the way over to the Macedonian coast, comes down the Macedonian coast. In fact, the last sermon that I preached here was Acts chapter 20, where Paul gathered the Ephesian elders in the little coastal town of Miletus. You might remember, he said, I've declared to you everything that God told me, and there was a, a sense that Paul knew he would never see these people again. And remember, with weeping and crying, they met him there in Miletus, they knelt down on the seashore, and they sent him off in the boat. Paul knows he will never see many of these beautiful people whom he loves again. So Paul has made his way now back to Jerusalem. And uh, it's quite fascinating that Paul was so dead set on going to Jerusalem because he had been told over and over again not to go. He would go into a town and a prophet would have a vision or somebody would, would come under the influence of the Spirit and say, don't go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a dangerous place for you, Paul. Yes, the Jerusalem Council, which took place about seven years before Acts 21 and 22, yes, they did receive your ministry positively. And yes, they did say that Gentiles could be accepted into the covenant community without becoming Jews. Yes, but Paul, the tide has changed. Many people were not comfortable with the ministry of Paul. They, they saw Paul as a bit of a, a liberal. They saw him as, a, as somebody who was too comfortable in Gentile settings, too comfortable milling and eating and mingling with Gentile peoples. And so the tide has turned. And when Paul is prepping to return to Jerusalem, there's a sense of foreboding. There's a sense of darkness. And people are urging Paul, don't go. Stay here in Ephesus where it's safe. Stay here in Macedonia where it's safe. Do not return to Jerusalem. But Paul was absolutely set. You might remember in the early part of Acts chapter 21, the prophet of doom in the book of Acts, a guy by the name of Agabus, has walked up to Paul and removed Paul's belt from him and tied him up and said, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound just as you are. Symbolically binds Paul. So Paul has all of these indications from various churches. The Spirit is saying, Jerusalem is a place of danger. Jerusalem is a place of conflict. Jerusalem is a place that will be unsafe for you. And yet Paul, for reasons not perfectly clear to us, Luke doesn't really spell it out for us, he had set his face as a flint. He was going to go to Jerusalem. And so in Acts chapter 21, the latter part, we find... Paul arriving in Jerusalem. And it starts off actually fairly nice. Starts off fairly conciliatory. The church is glad. All is sort of well. And uh, we'll just start reading in verse 15. It says, After these days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. And when they had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. So here you have the, the kind of sense of homecoming, right? It's been years since the Jerusalem Council, about seven. And it's been probably three years about since Paul was last in Jerusalem. And, and Peter's been doing his work and James has been doing... Well, James has passed away at this point. But, but the local have been doing their thing in and around Jerusalem. Just as Paul has been preaching all around Asia, there's been preaching going on in Jerusalem as well. And there's this sense of homecoming. Right In the days before FaceTime and iPhones and Skype and, and Twitter and all of that, where you didn't just keep moment to moment, you know, day to day, up to date with what was taking place. I mean, people want to see him again. They want to see his face. And so when he comes back, the church wraps their arms around him, arms of welcome, arms of reunion, arms of fellowship. We're so glad you're back. That joy, though, will be temporary and short-lived because the church will find itself in a precarious situation with regards to the ministry of Paul. And there's this sort of awkward moment where after the joy, after the food, after the eating, after the homecoming, the church has to sit down with Paul and have a heart-to-heart -heart with him, have an earnest, open conversation about the climate of Jerusalem. Things have changed. The Jerusalem council, things had gone well. They'd sent the letter with Paul. Oh yeah, this guy is authorized to preach. Barnabas is authorized to preach. But since the climate has shifted and the climate has changed, after the homecoming, after the reunion, after the joy, the church sits down, they look Paul square in the eye, and they have come up with a plan. They have come up with a what, everyone? With a plan. Verse 18. On the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders that were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, 
They glorified the Lord and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. That's very interesting. This is taking place perhaps as little as weeks before, and not more than months before, Paul would write his classic letter to the church at Rome. Right, Romans that we know, the classic, the king, the, 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 the king of all of Paul's epistles, he would write within, within weeks of this interaction. And so it's very interesting that when the church approaches Paul after the joy, after the reunion, after the homecoming, they basically say to him, Paul, you've been busy, you've been baptizing, you've been winning Gentile souls. Well, we also have won some, some souls here. In fact, myriads, the word literally is thousands We've won thousands here, and here's that pregnant phrase, who are zealous for the law. In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, which again, Paul will write within weeks of, his, of this encounter, he will write that the Jews, listen carefully, the religious leaders of the day have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Oh, they say, Paul, you've been busy, we've been busy. You've been baptizing your, your thousands. Well, we've been baptizing our thousands as well. And many of them are zealous for the law. The climate has changed, Paul. It's a little different. There's a lot of new believers. There's a lot of people that have put confidence in Jesus as Messiah. And we have a plan. Verse 21. These zealous converts have been informed about you. Now, it's fascinating. They've been informed. This is the way that journalism is going today in 2014. Everybody has sources that they can't disclose. According to sources in the White House, so-and-so, so-and-so. According to sources high in the Australian government, so-and-so, so-and-so. You always wonder, who are these sources? Right? Is it a little bird? Is it some sort of an informant? And so the church sits Paul down after the joy, after the reunion, after the homecoming. They look him square in the eye. They say, you've been busy, we've been busy. And the people that we've been busy winning are zealous for the law. And they have heard something. They have been informed. Look at this, verse 21, about you. That's always a nerve-wracking conversation, isn't it? Yeah. People are talking about you. That's rarely good news. They've been informed about you. Well, what is it, Saul, Paul must have thought as he scratched his head, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake... Here we go again. This is the same old, same old. Saul, Paul has heard this song over and over again, that you teach the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. If Paul has heard this accusation once, he's heard it a thousand times. The word on the street... Even among believers, Paul, is that you are downplaying Moses, you're downplaying the Old Testament, and you are downplaying the unique Jewish culture and customs that have been committed to us by God. Now, let's just sort of pan out momentarily and sort of try and get our fingers wrapped around a very volatile and even hostile first century situation. The Jews find themselves in the unenviable position of being under a Roman headship. They are a vassal king, a vassal kingdom with a vassal king named Herod under Rome. They hate the Romans. They have antipathy toward all the Gentiles, but the Romans in particular they despise. And one of the things that particularly the Pharisees and others had done to sort of insulate themselves from what they perceived as the encroaching you know, gentiling of, of Judaism and of the world was they became very passionate about the things that were uniquely and idiosyncratically Jewish. They became very inwardly focused, very insular, and very passionate about their customs that set them apart from the peoples that surrounded them, and particular, the custom of circumcision. Circumcision was something that the Romans found revolting. They found it a, a form of, of strange, superstitious, religious... Um, mutilation. No Roman would consent to anything such as mutilation, not willingly or something. That would be a, a kind of torture, circumcision. So, so circumcision became a flashpoint. It became a, a, a very significant issue that the Jews regarded as uniquely theirs and as, as culturally theirs and as importantly theirs. And the idea that Paul is undermining this, please listen, 
was not primarily a theological concern. It was a cultural concern. He's tearing down the walls between us and them. Right? And so, we've been baptizing a lot of people, the church said, but we're concerned because many of them are zealous for the law and they've heard that you've been forsaking Moses and you are actually teach, teaching people not to teach their children our customs. And at the center of that would have been the rite of circumcision, which was uniquely and emphatically Jewish. Verse 22. Now, before we get to verse 22, let's look at a, a quick quote here on the screen. This is from the book called Sketches from the Life of Paul by a woman named Ellen White. She writes this. Paul's great object in visiting Jerusalem was to conciliate the church of Palestine. He basically went with an olive branch in his hand to try and get a breakthrough because resistance, everywhere Paul would go in Asia, there would be these Jews chasing Paul around and saying, he's tearing down Moses, he's tearing down the law, he's tearing down the unique customs that God has committed to us. And, and Paul finally, to put it in modern language, was fed up. He said, man, I, I've just got to go and set this right again. Seven years before, it had already been set right at the Council of Jerusalem. But these little issues had not gone away. The thorns had continued to grow. And so Paul, his great object in returning was to conciliate the church of Palestine. So long as they continued to cherish prejudice against him, they were constantly working to counteract his influence. He felt that if he could, by any lawful concession on his part, win them to the truth, he would remove a very great obstacle to the success of the gospel in other places. So Paul basically goes back with olive leaf in hand. Now, unfortunately, this is going to create a perfect storm of circumstances that will eventuate in Paul's arrest and ultimate demise. Paul doesn't yet know this. He's received the prophecy from Agabus, don't go, don't go, don't go. But Paul's still th Paul is the perennial optimist. He just believes that if he can get an opportunity to speak to clear-headed people in a clear-headed way that they will respond to the Jesus that he preaches, right? And so Paul returns. People have said, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. Nope, he returns. He's, he's determined. Some might say stubborn. He is going to go to Jerusalem with olive branch in hand. And so when the church sits him down and says, this is the word on the street about you, Paul, they ask two words. What then? What are we going to do? What should we do in light of the fact that we've won a lot of zealous people and they don't think well of you and of your preaching? They've been informed from sources. That happens to me occasionally. People hear words, rumors about David, sources. What then? Right? Well, what then? They suggest a plan. And here's the plan. The plan is a classic politically calculated move to create an appearance that Paul is in fact not what he has been made out to be. Now, let's read what it is. Verse 22, what then? The assembly will certainly meet and they will hear that you have come. There's no way you're going to keep Paul's presence in Jerusalem a secret. That's not going to happen. So he says, hey, people are going to be talking. What are we going to do? Verse 23. Therefore, look at these next words here. Do what we tell you. Do what we say. And let me tell you this right now. That is always a dangerous proposition. If anybody ever says to you, now this is everybody over 18, do what I tell you to do. That's a nerve-wracking, that's, that's, that's complicated. Because how do I know that what you want me to do is in my own best interest, or even more uh, uh, important still, how do I know that what you want me to do is what God wants me to do? We got a plan, Paul. We've figured this out. We have thought long and hard. We've known for months that you were going to be arriving eventually, and we have a plan. We've figured this out. Do what we tell you. Okay, well, what is it? We have four guys over here who have taken a vow. Now, the Luke doesn't tell us expressly what vow is talked about here, but most scholars believe it's what's called the Nazarite vow or some form of the Nazarite vow. It's a vow of purification. Now, here's the problem. Paul is not impure, but he is perceived as impure. He spent too much time mingling and, and hanging out with and spending time with and eating with Gentiles. So already here, the church is on dangerous ground. They've, they have stated back in the Jerusalem council, Gentiles can become members of the community of faith and they don't have to become Jews. But here's a tricky situation because some feel that Paul has sullied himself. He has compromised. He's become a little too comfortable with the Gentiles. And so they say, hey, 
We've got four guys here who are going to go through a rite of purification. They've taken a vow. Okay? Paul must be thinking, all right, so what? What does it have to do with me? Verse 24, you take them, and you be purified with them. Ah, now the penny's dropping. Paul was no dummy. He was a brilliantly intelligent man, and he knew exactly what was going on. You go with them, and we'll further play this up. You pay for it. You pay their expenses so that they may all shave their heads, that all may know. Everybody will see that those things of which they were informed from their sources concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. The church is in very precarious ground here. The church has taken the political role. The church... Now, this is the, these, are, these are men of God. Godly men. This is Peter and James, men who have been filled with the Spirit, men who have written books in the Bible. And here their counsel is so far removed from the Spirit's will because they're thinking politically. They're thinking in terms of human wisdom and human thinking, and they're, they're, they're maneuvering, and they're coming up with a, a best-case scenario. And then verse 25, you can tell they know they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth because they reiterate the, council, uh, the Jerusalem Council's findings back from Acts 15. But concerning the Gentiles, just to be clear, Paul, we believe what we have written. And we decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Clearly the church knows that they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Now, number one, Paul, hey, 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 all that stuff that we decided about the Gentiles seven years ago, still fine and good. But we're asking you to go through a rite of purification because you've been, in, been spending time with them and it will look good. Do what we tell you. I want to tell you something today. Even your pastor, even your conference president, even somebody that you hold in high spiritual regard can give really bad advice. Look at this. There's a fine line between obeying man's voice and following wise and wide counsel. There's a fine line. I mean, I'm the kind of guy who, if I'm about ready to make a decision, I want to gather my elders together. I want to get Dave Robbie. I want to get Dave North. I want to get Karen Greenwood. I want to get my elders together. I want to say, hey, guys, we've got a difficult situation, guys and girls. We've got a difficult situation here. I'm thinking we should proceed like this. What do you think? I'm a consensus leader. I want to have my team with me. I'm not one of those guys that's going to run out in front and just try to do something on my own and hope that the church follows. I want to... But there's a fine line between being a consensus builder... And listening to the voice of man and not the voice of God. Because what do you do if your elders take a path that you think is contrary to the path that God has for you? You see, Paul's in a difficult situation right here because he has come back with an olive leaf in his hand. He wants to make it right. But he senses immediately and intuitively that this isn't right. And here's Paul's failure. He goes along with it. Look at this. Also from sketches from the life of Paul. But while James assured Paul that the decision of the former council concerning the Gentile converts and the ceremonial law still held good, the advice given was not consistent with that decision, which had also been sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. Look at these last two sentences here. The, Holy, the Spirit of God did not prompt this advice. It was the fruit of cowardice. I'm going to say this again. This is the church. The church gets this one totally wrong, and they get it totally wrong for political reasons. If the church just would have stood with Paul, and they would have said, look, he's not impure. He's been preaching the gospel, and we're going to stand. It could have potentially fractured the church, and all of these new converts who are zealous for the law could have left. And so what the church does is they make a calculated decision. Hey, we're going to, it's easier for Paul to go through this simple rite of purification. They must be thinking, this is a small inconvenience. It's a small issue. Paul's a big picture guy. He'll get the big picture. And everybody will live happily ever after. We all ride off into the sunset and everybody's happy. There's a problem. This little seemingly harmless, innocuous political maneuver, listen carefully to what I'm going to say because it's mind-blowing is actually going to cause the recognition, arrest, and ultimately the execution of Paul. The church unwittingly will become responsible for the death of its greatest preacher and missionary. The church. You think, oh, it's Rome. It's, it's Nero that's going to chop off Paul's head. Well, certainly... 
There will be someone who will wield the axe and kill him. But it's the church that places him unnecessarily in a position of danger because they were unwilling to be placed in a socially, culturally uncomfortable situation. The church was 75% to blame, but Paul was to blame too. Because Paul went along with the counsel that he knew wasn't quite right. But Paul, being an optimist, Paul with the olive leaf in his hand, Paul wanting to extend himself to the church, went along unwisely. I want to tell you this today, church. I want to tell you this. Even the best of people can let you down, but Jesus never will. Can the church say amen to that? I'm telling you right now, your pastor can give some bad advice. Right? I'd like to think that my advice is sound and that it's reasoned and that it's rational. I'd like to think that we're surrounded by a team of great elders and deacons and other ministers here that can give sound advice. But even spirit-led people can get it wrong. But Jesus will never get it wrong. You! He's the only one to whom you can always heed these words. Do what I tell you. Do what I tell you. If David Asherick says, do what I tell you, think twice or three times, or four times about it. If anybody else says, do what I tell you, press pause, think it through, and weigh what would God have you to do. I'm not, I'm not saying this in order for you to be suspicious of myself or of the, of the, rest, of the rest of the team here, but simply to bring the reality that being a pastor, being an elder, being a Christian doesn't make us infallible. We're human beings just like you. We put our pants on one leg at a time, Right? We have to take showers, we eat food just like you eat, and here Paul was placed in a precarious situation where he longs to extend the hand of conciliation. He longs to extend the hand of commonality to the church, but he knows that the advice is bad advice, and he hates the advice because theologically it's wrong. It suggests that he's impure. It suggests that he needs to be cleansed. And yet, if the church was political, with a capital P, Paul was political with a lowercase p. He goes along. Look at this from sketches from the life of Paul. He was not authorized. He was not authorized of God to concede so much as they had asked. So if the church committed 75% of the error, Paul committed at least 25%. He went along with it. He, wouldn't, he was not authorized by God to go along with what they asked. This concession was not in harmony with Paul's own teachings nor with the firm integrity of his character, his advisors were not infallible. They've done terrifying studies, sociological studies, and they're terrifying because they are so consistently confirmed that most people, if placed in a social situation where there is a certain social expectation of them, will act in harmony with that social expectation, even if it involves hurting other people, abusing other people, oppressing other people, or placing themselves in danger. It's terrifying. Most of us standing here today think, no, 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 no. I am the rock upon which the waves break and remain unmoved. No. No, I wouldn't capitulate. I wouldn't give in. I'm firm. I'm no, 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 I'm telling you. Study after study, sociological study confirms that basically all of you, it's somewhere around 80 to 90% of people placed in social situations where there is the the universal expectation of a certain behavior, most of us capitulate. On my own Facebook page recently, I put up a, an article, a conversation that I had between myself, Pastor Dwight Nelson, and another pastor about torture and whether or not torture is acceptable. If you're interested, you can go watch that conversation. It's on my Facebook page. 45 minutes of conversation about torture and the recent torture report that was released by the Senate about the United States Central Intelligence Agency. I want to tell you, I was really proud of Moesha. I was really proud of Sinead. I was proud of Josh. I was proud of Bailey. I was proud of all of our Sabbath School participants, Cooper, this morning, because we had a conversation this morning, a good, earnest conversation about torture and about violence and when is it acceptable and is it ever acceptable and how would we know that it's acceptable? And I was really pleased with the answers that the young people gave. It tells me they're thinking. And they're not just thinking, they're thinking biblically. They're thinking spiritually, and I love that. On my Facebook page, one of the things that I put up was this conversation, and somebody wrote back and said, well, that's easy for you to say. Sitting in your comfortable, air-conditioned life in front of your $3,000 Apple computer, it's easy for you to say that torture is wrong. Removed as you are from its consequences, 
Easy for you to say, they point the finger. And my response was simply this. If we don't start saying those things in times of ease, we'll never say them in times of duress and difficulty. The time to decide what we believe about reality and about morality and about life and about truth is now. Because when those social situations come and there's an expectation for you to do A because everybody's doing A, most of us will do it. It takes that rare Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Who had decided weeks or probably months or years before that they wouldn't capitulate. And too many of us, we're, we're, we're just, we're just, we're happy people. We're, 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 we're accommodating people. We're kind people and we want people to like us. And so we're placed in a social situation and Paul was placed in a difficult social situation. Paul, you're impure. Paul would have thought, no, I'm not. You need to purify yourself. No, I don't. You're preaching that Moses is, do away with Moses. No, I don't. And yet, he goes along. He was not authorized. He was not authorized. My appeal to you today on this is begin today to think about what you stand for. As someone famously said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. What are those values that you hold dear what are those things that you will not compromise on, that you will not be shaken on? What are those things that the Holy Spirit could strengthen your heart? Start thinking about them today when you have food in your cupboard and a refrigerator in your house so that when the difficult times come, you've already been through the hard yards of thinking and practicing. You've done the little wins so that when the big test comes, you just might, with the Holy Spirit's power, pass it. Now, let's watch what happens. We're back in Acts chapter 21. Verse 26. Paul took the men the next day, having been purified with them, and he entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification at the time the offering should be made for each one of them. Paul says, okay, I'll go along with it. He goes into the temple. They shave their heads. Here's the problem. Paul was a popular man. And even though they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have Instagram, they didn't have cameras in those days, somebody recognized Paul. The church had unwittingly and unwisely placed Paul in danger, and he's discovered Verse 27, now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him and they cried out, men of Israel, help! Listen to the desperation. Help! As if they've apprehended a terrorist. Help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people. We've already seen in our own study of Acts Back in Acts chapter 19, remember when the 25,000 pagans were gathered in, in the Ephesian Colosseum? Remember when they were about ready to tear Paul's comrades to shreds? And the town clerk came in and said, settle down. These men are not against your religion. They have not stolen from your temples and they have not blasphemed your gods. Paul was not a preacher against things as we've already seen. He was a preacher for things. He didn't spend time tearing down those around him, tearing down cultures around him. He spent time building up Jesus and his resurrection. But notice the first accusation that's raised against Paul. This guy is against the people. He's against the people. He's against the law. He's against this place. Furthermore, he brought Greeks into the temple that defiled this holy place. That was a sin punishable by death. To bring an uncircumcised person into the inner sanctum, there was in the temple what was called the Gentiles' court. And Greeks and others could mingle in the Gentiles' court. But now the charge is levied against Paul. He brought Greeks into the inner sanctum of, 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 of a crime punishable by death. Verse 29, Luke wants you to know that that was not true. For they had previously seen Trophimus and Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that he had brought into the temple. Paul was not a reckless, revolutionary, tearing bits and pieces apart. Of, no, 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 no. No. No, there was an accusation made. There was gossip. And I want to tell you this. Gossip is a knife that cuts both ways. All of these rumors, all of these informants, all of these sources about Paul, gossip is a knife that cuts both ways. Because if someone will gossip to you, make no mistake, they'll gossip about you. If somebody will say something to you, about another person that they wouldn't say in their presence, that's gossip. And if somebody will gossip to you, they'll gossip about you. 
The reports on the street are that Paul is against, that he's tearing down, that he's anti-Jewish, that he's tearing away the customs, and Paul would have sat there and taken it all in. And if he'd been given the opportunity to give a reasoned defense, which is why he's going to write Romans out, he knows his days are numbered. In a few weeks, he'll be writing Romans. He's lucky to make it out of this situation alive. Look at this. All the city, verse 30, was disturbed, and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and then there's this note of finality, and immediately the doors were shut. You know what's going on behind closed doors. They're going to tear this guy to shreds. Many Jews are already there. There's this feast that's going on. There's a sense of happiness and joy, and yet there's always a tinderbox in Jerusalem under first century Uh, under the first century situation in which they found themselves with Rome. And so any suggestion that somebody was a cultural traitor or a patriotic traitor or a theological traitor, I mean, it was a tinderbox. You just light a match and the whole thing can go up. And they say, hey, help, we found this guy. And the whole thing just erupts instantaneously. And now the church, I can just imagine what Peter and James must have been thinking when they get news. Saul is being, Paul is being pulled apart as we speak. Our advice placed him in that precarious and dangerous situation. Fortunately, the ruckus was just enough. If they had just quietly stabbed him, we would have, this would be the end of Acts. But they make a big fuss about it. As they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison. Now, we don't, know, he's not, we don't find his name until we get to Acts chapter 23, but his name is Claudius. Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias gets news. Hey, there's a tumult in the city. And Rome was about the Pax Romana. They were about the peace of Rome. And they didn't like all this carrying on and tumult. And so they get word that there's something violent taking place. They were seeking to kill him. Word came to the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions. Because this is a, I want to say it again, it was a tinderbox. There was always a sense that, that some crazy, wild-eyed Jewish revolutionary was going to start killing people in the name of Yahweh. And the Jews were just ready, or the Romans were just ready at any moment to stop these various riots that were springing up. And so the word has come out, hey, there's a riot taking place in the temple. Here comes Claudius Lysias with his soldiers. They rush in there. Immediately he took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them. And when they saw them, the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And Paul comes within a, and it's classic what Luke does here. Rome becomes the protector of Paul against his own people. Luke's portrayal of the mingling of church and state is very sophisticated. I don't have time to develop it here, but it's very interesting. The commander came near to him and commanded him to be bound with chains, and he asked, what what have you done? What what have you done? What have you done? Well, this guy's no theologian. This guy's no Jew. He's not going to understand the idiosyncrasies of Messiah and, and ceremony and circumcision and all that. He said, what crime has this guy committed? Then some among the multitude cried one thing, and then someone else cried another. But Claudius could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, and he commanded them to be taken into the barracks. What another fascinating little irony that Paul has to be extracted from the temple, the temple of peace, the temple of Christ, the temple of holiness, and he has to be saved in Roman soldiers' barracks. That becomes a place of safety and sanctuary for him. When he reached the stairs, he had been carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people followed him, crying, Away with him! Get rid of this guy! As Paul was about to be led to the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And the guy replies, Claudius says, Wait a minute, you can speak Greek? Bilingualism was not uncommon in Paul's day, and so it's likely that Paul wasn't just speaking Greek, but he was speaking a high Greek. He was from Tarsus, a Greek city. He was a very educated man. And so he must have spoken with a certain polish and panache that alerted him to the fact that this guy's not just an ordinary ruffian. Wait a minute. You speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian, Claudius says to him, hey, aren't you the Egyptian terrorist some time ago that stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? That's who I thought you were. That's why I arrested you so quickly. But Paul said, no, 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 no. I am a Jew, watch this now, from Tarsus in Cilicia. I am, a, I am a citizen of no insignificant city. I implore you, let me speak to the people. So the Claudius begins to think, oh, this must be a case of mistaken identity. Oh, they must think they've got the wrong guy. And so he says, yeah, please, explain yourself. So he stands up on the stairs. And when he had given permission, Paul stood on the stairs and he motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great silence. He spoke to them in the Hebrew language. He switches now. He speaks in the Hebrew language, and what Paul does here is he lays out his Jewish resume. Look at what he says. 
Verse, when, when, they heard that, when they saw that he was speaking in the Jewish language, verse 2, verse 3, I am indeed a Jew. First words out of his mouth. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia. I was brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, we know who Gamaliel is. We encountered him back in Acts chapter 5. He was a high, respected rabbi. Probably at, as young as at the age of five, Paul had, young Saul had been brought to Gamaliel's feet. So this is big stuff. He's a big shot. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, he would have said. I, taught according to, I was taught according to the statutes and the strictness of our father's law. I was zealous toward God as you all, all are at this day. He's probably not speaking Hebrew. He's speaking Aramaic, which was sort of the street Hebrew. And Claudius has no idea what he's saying because it's a guarantee Claudius didn't speak Aramaic. He's just like, um, hopefully he'll say something that will calm the mob and he can just let him go. I persecuted the church, verse 4, to death, binding them, delivering them in prison, both men and women. And also the high priest bore witness to me. He, he, the high priest, he says, bears witness. And all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were in Jerusalem to be punished. I love this. Because most of the people in that crowd would have never even, would have never spoken personally to the high priest. And Paul goes so far as to say, I received personal letters of trust from the high priest. He's laying out his Jewish resume. Now what happens in the rest of Acts chapter 22, up until about verse 22, Paul tells his testimony. He tells his story. He tells the story, but the story is quite an interesting one. Look at verse 21. Jump all the way down to verse 21. Paul tells the story of when he was on the road to Damascus and the bright light shone and the voice came, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I, who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He told the story. He told his testimony. But look at verse 21. He says that Jesus said to me, depart for I will send you from here to the, what word does he say? To the Gentiles. And the moment he said that, they instantly forgot everything that he'd said up to that point. The moment he began to say, because that's the very charge against him. Oh, you're a friend of Gentiles. You're tearing down. The moment he mentions the Gentiles, look at what happens. And they listened to him until this word. Oh, there was such antipathy and cultural hatred. And this didn't take place over decades. This took place not over even centuries, but over millennia the Jews had been conditioned to hate the Gentiles. Oh, when they heard this word, they were already in a furor. They already wanted to tear him to bits. And when he had the audacity to say Gentiles, they said, away with this fellow from the earth. This guy's not even fit to live. And as they cried out, they tore off their clothes and they threw dust into the air. And the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and they said that he should be examined under scourging so that they might know what was shouted against him. Because they're shouting in Aramaic. The commander doesn't have a clue what's going on. And the episode basically closes with this Roman commander becoming the protector of Saul, Paul. Several things. First of all, we have here another great case in point of Paul's amazing contextualization. We've seen it over and over again. In Acts 13, when Paul goes into the synagogue, the synagogue in Antioch, he speaks to Jewish people and he speaks in a Jewish way about Jewish things. In Acts 14, when he's dealing with idolatrous pagans, he speaks not about Jewish. He doesn't talk about Abraham. He doesn't talk about David. He doesn't talk about Moses. He talks about rain. He talks about fields. He talks about food. And he talks about the Creator. In Acts chapter 17, when, Saul finds himself, when Paul finds himself before uh, the Athenian philosophers, he says, you're very religious. One of your own gods, I've got a message from one of your own gods, and some of your own poets said that we are his offspring. He, he talks their language. So if Paul's with a Jewish audience, he's Jewish. If Paul's with a Gentile audience, he's Gentile. And when Paul stood up there in front of all those Jewish people, he lays out his Jewish resume. Why? Because Paul was the master of context, context, context. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul would say this, Though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I'm like a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those as under the law, I become like one under the law, so that I might win those as under the law. To those not having a law, I become like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And I do all of this for the sake of the what? Why does he do it? 
Not because he's a political chameleon, but because he just wants the truth of Jesus to be packaged however it needs to be packaged. Is it, am I going to put it in the Athenian package? Am I going to put it in the Lystra package? Am I going to put it in the Derby package? Am I going to put it in the Jerusalem package? Am I going to put it in the Australian package? Am I going to put it in the Jamaican package? Am I going to put it in the African package? Am I going to put it in the Canadian package? The gospel is a message for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And we have to become experts, not at doing things in our own rigid way. Oh, this is the way we've always done it. Culturally and met methodologically, this is the way we've always done it. Well, the world is changing, man. The way that your granddad preached the gospel 50 years ago or 60 years ago might not make any sense to the culture today. What's the language that this culture is speaking? What, how are Australians speaking? How are Australians living? That's the language we've got to speak. If we're speaking the language of the 1920s, 1930s, or 1950s, and some of us are speaking the language of 1611. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou heareth the sound thereof, and knoweth not whence it cometh, or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And every one of your neighbors just looked at you and said, what in the world are you talking about, man? We have to speak the language of the people Paul was a master of this because he was a follower of Jesus who was a master. When he spoke to fishermen, he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. When he spoke to a rich young ruler, he said, I'll give you treasures in heaven. When he spoke to a woman who was thirsty at the well, he said, I'll give you water, you'll never thirst. I'm telling you guys, if we just keep doing church the way we do church, we're going to get churchy people. But if we want to win the culture in which we find ourselves, we're going to have to start asking the question, how do we take the gospel and put it in a Kingscliff package? How do we take the gospel and put it in an Australian package? How do we put the gospel in a Gold Coast package? How do we put the gospel in a 2014 package? Because the gospel can, as long as we don't compromise the principles of the gospel, the gospel is designed to be taken. Paul says, I become all things to all people so that I can win some of those Australians. Yeah, you with me? All right, I want to close with this. Paul is on the verge of being torn to bits. I mean, right? Just imagine, you're being beaten by an angry mob. It's, that's grim. If you think of all the ways to die, that's a really grim way to die. Pulled to bits and beaten to bits by an angry mob under false accusation to add insult to injury. Here's what I want to say to you today, church. Be sure that when you have nothing, you still have a testimony. Because notice... Paul, under duress, under, there's adrenaline racing through his veins. He's got cuts. He's got bruises. He's afraid. He's scared, but he's standing tall. And what he resorts to, he instinctively, intuitively, like a knee jerk, he knows that the thing that you resort to when everything is taken away from you, where are his friends? Where, where's safety? Where's security now? Where, where? It's gone. But he has a testimony. He comes back to his story. He reverts automatically to his story. He tells his story. That's what's going to happen at the end of time. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. These triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's Saul right there. That's Paul right there, man. He's not afraid to die because he has a testimony. He knows Jesus. He knows whom he has believed. He's not afraid of somebody that can kill the body. I want to give you a Sabbath afternoon activity. I don't know what your Sabbath afternoon plans are, but I want to add 20 minutes to your Sabbath afternoon. I'm giving you a homework assignment. Go to the Lightbearers website, lightbearers.org. L-I-G-H-T bearers.org. Go to the website, click on blog. It'll be in the upper left-hand corner right here. Click on that. And read this blog right here from this young lady named Nicole... Stallings. She just graduated from the Arise program. I just came back. This young girl has a testimony. She has a story. You will be weeping tears. If you're a crier, you'll be crying. My wife read it just this morning. I read it. I brought it actually this morning thinking that if I preach short, which I never do, I might read part of it to you. Spend the 20 minutes, especially for the young people. She's, she's 19. So I'm looking at the Moishas and I'm looking at the Sinead's and I'm looking at the Josh's and the Alex's and the Bailey's and the Cain's. I'm looking at the young people here. I'm looking at the Brent's. Go read this testimony. You're going to be busy all afternoon playing Clash of Clans. Read this. Maybe not you guys, but some of you will be. You know who I'm talking about. Listen to me very carefully. Read this story. It will melt your heart and it might put you back in touch with the primitive beauty of, and simplicity of your own testimony. Oh, it'll melt your heart. This young girl was a drug runner at the age of 16. You know what a drug runner is? 
Somebody who takes drugs from house to house to house means you don't have a home. You just deliver the drugs and you stay around until you have another drug run and you live in that house and you do the things that they do in that house and you have no voice of your own. You are, for all intents and purposes, a slave. That's your job. Running drugs for thugs. Oh, wait till you read her story. Your heart will melt. No, 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 no. When it comes down to it, when you may find yourself staring the specter of death in the face, whether it's an angry mob or pancreatic cancer, when you have nothing, make sure you have a testimony. When you have nothing, when you have nothing in the world, make sure you have a testimony. And they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. My appeal to you today, be sure that when you have nothing, you have a testimony. How many people today want to say with me, Lord, make me, make me somebody who has a testimony with you, an experience with you, something that when the specter of death is staring me in the face, I can face it unafraid with confidence in Christ who loved me, who gave himself for me, and who has always been faithful to me. As the old, as the old song says, you've always been faithful to me. Anybody want to say that with me? Woo! Me too. Father in heaven today, in our own little way, in, in sunny, beautiful, paradisical Australia, Father, today we've won a little victory. In some s small way today, Father, we have stomped on the head of Satan because we have said we're the kinds of people that have testimonies and that want testimonies. Something that we can look back to that moment, to that, to that crucible moment when we saw Jesus on the cross and we saw that it wasn't his faith, it wasn't our faithfulness, but it was his faithfulness. It wasn't our righteousness, but it was his righteousness. It wasn't our good works, it was his good works. It wasn't what we did, it's what he did for us. Father, every one of us, we need that moment. We need that, that sense of being born again, being infilled with the Spirit, so that when we have nothing, we will always have Jesus. So that when we have nothing, we will always have Jesus. And Father, teach us like Paul, with knee-jerk, intuitive, instinctive reaction. When the chips are down, and the hostility is high, or the stakes are high, Father, may we, may we revert back always to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus. And in his name we pray. Let all the saints of the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church and visitors say with me, Amen. God bless you all and happy Sabbath.